I will be your curious layman for this conversation. <laughs> so to be fair, the, the area that we're, we want to talk about the refugees, the right of return and all, all your work in that field is something that I've largely learned through your work. So I, okay. I, I, I'm also a curious idiot when it comes to this. So, <laughs> okay, let's start. Hey, Vanessa. Hey, Adam. Welcome to Uncertain Things. Today, we have Dr. Inait Wolf with us, who is actually, do you want to introduce yourself? Do you want to give the, the full CV? I won't give the full CV, but I will say that I used to be a politician, a member of parliament in Israel. Uh, the way things are going, maybe a future politician, but I've been for the last decade since being out of politics, I've been writing and speaking on issues related to Israel and the Jewish people and the conflict and the path to peace. And you co-authored the, the wonderful book, The War of Return with uh, Adi Schwartz. Yes, yes, yes. And also have a podcast called We Should All Be Zionists. I've been enjoying the, the conversations with, uh, is it Blake Flayton? Is yeah, that his name? Blake Flayton. Yeah. yeah, it reminds me a little bit of our friend Eli Lakes, the re-education, yep. except that Eli takes current topics and makes them into essays and, and you take your, the work from your uh, essay collection and, yes. and then evolve that into a conversation. So... We are here to discuss primarily, I think, the questions from the right of return, because what that book does is illuminate one of the, I'd say, most misunderstood aspects of the conflict in, in between Israelis and Palestinians and why it is in its current in seemingly intractable state. And when I say misunderstood, usually that is euphemistic for Western idiocy. But in this case, I think this is actually an aspect of the conflict that is sometimes even misunderstood in Israeli society. So I think kind of unpacking the history of this question of the right of return of Palestinian refugees is going to take us some time, and that's going to be the bulk of our conversation. And I'm going to try and take a backseat role in this time because I think Vanessa's ability to inquire into this will be more useful than mine. So, Vanessa, take it away. Well, I think for me, it would be helpful to spend a little bit of time with historical context, actually, to understand. Context, actually, I think, is kind of the, uh, the slur <laughs> of the moment. Yes. I want to choose other words. <laughs> Even so, I still, I still want it. I still want some historical founding, yes. especially around this idea of, of Zionism and right of return in a in the Jewish context, because when I hear the term Zionism as a curious layman, I assume that there is that there's something about returning to a homeland as an inherent part of what that must be. And so maybe just understanding maybe historically to what extent that has been inherent to the Zionist movement might be an interest, a helpful place to start. So I would start by saying that the idea of return is in some way secondary to the understanding of Zionism, uh, and I'll explain why. The Zionism, broadly to understand, I say, has three parents. One parent is indeed the ongoing historical, cultural, ritual 
relationship between the people of Israel and the land of Israel, between the Jewish people uh, and Judea. And that is clearly apparent of Zionism. But a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that this is Zionism, that Zionism is all about the Jews uh, going to their homeland. And and sometimes people will say things like, Zionism is a 3,000-year-old movement. And my answer is that this is an ahistorical claim, because if you want to say that, then why did the state of Israel emerge in the 20th century? Why not in the 15th? Why not in the 10th? Why not in the 5th? Because if this is a continuous, ongoing relationship as it is, then why at a particular moment in history? So it's a critical parent, but it's only one parent. And and just for context, in case of somebody has never encountered Jews, which, you know, recently I've been, (laughs) friends of mine have told me about (laughs) meeting people who have never seen a Jew before and were looking for their horns. So the idea of return in Jewish tradition is is deeply embedded right because yes. the, the the religion as as is practiced today is a diaspora religion that yearns for Jerusalem for Zion where Zionism the word Zionism yeah. comes from and the 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 tradition and the sense of dislocation informs m- almost every aspect of Jewish practice That's a very good way of understanding it. In many ways, the very notion of being Jewish is the preservation of the people uh, for the restoration in the land. Uh, When I give talks that that go deep into Jewish history, I tie between the geography of the land, which is marked by uh, movement and the kind of the foundational uh, mythologies of the Jewish people, Abraham coming to the land, the exodus from Egypt into the land. So the Jewish people are marked from the beginning by a deep connection to the land of Israel that from the beginning, from the earliest stories, is marked by the coming and going, the exodus, the exile, the restorations, the first temple, the second temple. Uh, so You're absolutely right that the connection between the Jewish people and the land of Israel is therefore part of every element of ritual. We just celebrated Hanukkah. Hanukkah is part of the Hebrew calendar that marks uh, part of the connection between the Jews, a historical moment in the land of Israel. It's um, it's all there. You know, there, there are sometimes efforts by generally very fringe Jews to disassociate uh, Jewish... Is it very French or very French? French. No, <laughs> we like French Jews, French. It's with French yeah. culture to be a, a yeah. deconstructionist Jew. <laughs> it's an interesting, I didn't put it this way, but uh, yeah, they, they sometimes try to disassociate Jewish ritual and practice from any connection to the land of Israel, to Zion. And they always end with bizarre contortions because it's just so part of what you say every Passover, what you say when you get married. The whole idea of a Hebrew calendar of Hebrew Jewish holidays is connected to the land of Israel because it's mostly an agricultural calendar where it only makes sense in the climate of the land of Israel. So you're absolutely right. To be Jewish, every element of it is seeped to the connection of the land of Israel. You'd be be forgiven for misunderstanding then that when you, since there is so much connection with Zion, 
that mm-hmm. Zionism would be intrinsically or primarily linked right. with the land. Uh, but before before you just jump to this, because I'm sure. sure this is going to lead to the two other parents of Zionism. Sure. I just want to add that part of the reason that the, the connection of Judaism to the land is misunderstood goes back to what we talked about with Tom Holland all those many years ago. And I think one of our earliest conversation, if not the first. Was the first. It was the first, right? About the idea of religion as we use it today colloquially, which is really just a form or a mold of Christianity as the universalist relation between the individual and his or her conscience, but not something that ha- that unites a nation or a people and connects people to land. And that idea was as such revolutionary, but completely elides the the distinction of faiths or systems or cultures mm. like Judaism that are inherently nationalistic and inherently, um, I don't know if tribal is the right word, but but uh, have a, a, an emphasis on consanguinity and, and a relation to a certain localized worship. Yeah, I guess I can, actually that's the first time that I've put two and two together actually because I, I mean, I have family members that have told me like they don't really get Jewishness because it's like, if it's a religion, then like, like how can it be an ethnicity? Uh, and I guess I never really thought about it in that the framework of Tom, like with Tom Holland and the idea of religion, like religion is a very Christian <laughs> framework. And so, be, and Judaism being, you know, uh, a, pre, pre, a predecessor, it's just, it's like, it's like an, an ill-fitting framework with which to see Judaism. And it makes it difficult in our, to, with our contemporary eyes to understand how the, how the religion can be so intertwined with a, with a people and, and, and presumably a land. And by the way, tribal, I think, is actually the best word. Hmm. Uh, when I speak with people about what it means to be Jewish, I say, if you want at the end of the day, one word, I find the tribe actually captures it the best. And, and Tom Holland is wonderful. I assign Dominion uh, when I teach about Jewish history. I assign the book Dominion because it really shows how the modern idea that Judaism is a religion is actually a modern 19th century secularized Christian con- uh, uh, construct intended to fit Jews into the secular idea of the nation. And that it really brings us to the second parent of Zionism is the idea is really the disappointment of emancipation. Emancipation was the idea that Jews can be French, can be German, can be equal citizens of a secular republic, but the price of emancipation was disassociating Jewish identity from the collective. So just to, to clarify, emancipation is the process where European sovereigns gave Jews the opportunity to try and assimilate in the, the, the European nations and basically get out of the ghetto. What time period are we talking? We're talking beginning with the French Revolution. Uh, the French Rev- Immediately after the French Revolution, introducing the idea of the rights of man, the citizen, the republic, the secular republic, all these ideas, there's really a question of whether the Jews, after being so clearly marked as the other in Christian Europe for millennia, can they finally become not the other, but one of uh, basically Frenchmen or Germans? And the answer is yes, they can become citizens of the French Republic, 
But the deal essentially is one that says that as individuals, they can be French, but they can no longer think of being Jewish as a collective national identity. So this is the moment that Judaism is really born as a religion. The idea that it's about faith and ritual is basically the price of entry into being French citizens. And it persists to this day. The idea of Judaism only as a private or local communal identity is really fairly recent. It's from the end of the 18th to early 19th century. And that's emancipation. That's the price of emancipation. And Tom Holland very beautifully says that if to the Jews it felt like an ultimatum, he says it's because it was. It was essentially this is the price of entry. You can become French, you can become Germans, but you have to reconceive of how you are Jews. And you have to cut away any notion that you're a people and a nation. To be blunt about it, you have to Christianize the terms of your Judaism. <laughs> exactly. Which I guess to, to some degree is still super relevant in France today, right? I mean, this is a very current conversation continually. And maybe not with Jewishness as much as with, uh, with maybe uh, Islam, but it's still happening, this conversation. All the time. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it remains highly relevant. And uh, essentially, the second parent of Zionism is the disappointment from emancipation. Mm. Throughout the 19th century, among many Jews, there's actually excitement from emancipation. Despite the price of entry, the promises, the integration, the opportunity to be full members of those societies is such a, a wonderful promise that a lot of Jews partake in that. And a lot of what we learn about Jewish contributions to science and literature and the arts is really from that moment when they're invited into European society. And uh, it's the disappointment from emancipation. It's the fact that emancipation saw the rise of anti-Semitism as the kind of scientific secularized iteration of the ancient Jew hatred. This time it was racialized, uh, basically telling the Jews, you know what, we kind of told you that you can belong, but not really. You're still the other. I think the term the Jewish question starts around that time. Precisely. And that's the essence of the Jewish question. Can the Jews ever fully belong? And can Europe ever fully answer to its noble ideals of participation and equality and assimilation. And someone like Theodor Herzl, uh, who's in Budapest and later in Vienna, who really believed in the promise of emancipation and later... Had a Christmas tree at his home. Too, and, and really viewed himself as Viennese. And this is the end of the 19th century. Vienna is this cosmopolitan capital and Jews are really at the highest echelons of Viennese society. And, and they really, this is a century of emancipation behind them. They really feel that the fact that they're Jews no longer matters. They're Viennese, they're Germans, they're French. And then Herzl sees the rise of anti-Semitism. He sees it in university. Today, we think of anti-Semitism as this, you know, right-wing ideology of the deplorables. And when, again, when I give these talks, I struggle to, especially with younger audiences, to explain to them that anti-Semitism at the end of the 19th century, the early 20th century, was a very scientific, uh, modern idea. It was an intellectual movement. It was not, exactly. it was not backwater thinking. Precisely. Uh, and that's where Herzl sees it. He sees it among his colleagues in university. He sees it enter politics. He sees it enter journalism. 
And basically he says, okay, uh, Europe will not be able to live up to its ideals. So then he basically declares a century of emancipation a failure. And he says, when we agreed to pretend for about a century that we're not a people and we're not a nation as the price of entry, this is not working. So he's reclaiming the national collective identity. And in his book, he basically says, we are a people, one people, which a century after emancipation is a dramatic phrase, and that is the birth of Zionism. Just apropos anti-Semitism, a uh, favorite anecdote that um, my boss, Jonah, likes to bring up is it's worth remembering that anti-Semitism, the word itself, is coined in that time. Until that point, it was just, hey, here are some Jews next door, let's pogrom them. The idea in the 19th century is intellectualizing this process mm-hmm. into supposedly, you know, moving away from the Christian bigotry and the, the local European disgust of, of the Jews, which was, seen, which was seen as bushwhacking backwater rubes, but move to a higher a- academic view of the Jewish question and whether a Jew can really assimilate into Europe. And it's that thinking that partly obtains through the Dreyfus trial and certainly the sort of mm-hmm. intellectual Un, uh, work undergirding the the Third Reich. Absolutely. Yeah, it all emerges from that moment. Right, and I assume that actually somewhat linked to the fact that at the same time that Jewish people are having a consciousness around themselves as a people, it would make sense that there's a, <laughs> there's the, the counter anti-Semitism, uh, counterbalance of anti-Semitism, right? Like, I think that's largely reversing the causality, actually. I think that the, yeah. the consciousness of the people emerges from the recognition that we cannot be fully assimilated. Uh, Again, this is the, yeah, the point yeah, that makes of sense. the uh, disappointment from emancipation. Right. Many Jews, the Jews who just wanted to assimilate, wanted to assimilate. It was not, uh, we will assimilate, right. but we, we're, we're still um, harboring the desire to die. Right. Many of them were kind of like American Jews here, where assimilation actually did work, saw themselves as French. Their Jewishness yeah. was in their minds, something that was more akin to Christianity or something that was a matter of conscience or a tradition that they wanted to preserve. But it was the intellectualization of anti-Semitism and starting to view Jew, Jew, Jews as a separate race that, or I, sometimes you saw it as a race, sometimes it's a culture, but either way as a foreign contem, uh, contaminant in European culture that the Jews realized, oh, maybe we cannot fully assimilate. And even at that point, Zionism is is but the, you know, the, the, the glint in Herzl's eyes, in Herzl's vision, that he recognizes that, holy shit, I think after the Dreyfus trial, maybe they will never really accept us. That's what leads him to form the movement of Zionism to call on Jews. Hey, I know that you think that you're doing fine here. I know that you think that you've become middle class and you've been absorbed, but you're wrong. They'll come at you. If you stay here within <laughs> X number of years, you will suffer the pogrom of your lifetime. And and that was the argument. That was the call to action. And for Herzl, it was not necessarily about Zion specifically. It was about uniting the Jews as a people to find a solution because he realized that they could not belong in Europe. They will not be accepted in Europe. Indeed. And he basically says, if the French get their state, if the Germans get their state, if all these peoples, the Poles and the Ukrainians and the Slovaks and the Czechs are beginning to rise up then we are a nation too, and we participate in the uh, in the universal rights to self-determination, to have our own state, 
and where will I, our state be except in the one geography to which we were ever connected, and that's Zion. So that's the third parent. Uh, the second parent is the failure or disappointment of emancipation, and the third parent is the rise of the idea of the nation to replace the declining empires. Right. Okay, so it sounds like this idea of a homeland in Israel or uh, is one of the parents, but you said not primary, actually. And and this idea, maybe so maybe the statehood parent is perhaps the primary parent. I, and maybe just if if you can maybe explain 1948. The idea of the ancient connection between the Jewish people, the people of Israel, and the land of Israel is one of the three primary parents. And it's a completely necessary mm-hmm. one. Uh, but the issue of return, when I say that the issue of return or basically the issue of moving of immigration is secondary, it is basically just the outcome of the situation. Zionism emerges at the moment where the vast majority of Jews, because of the Roman exile, live outside the land of Israel. So there is a continuous Jewish presence over the millennia, especially in what are called the four holy cities, Hebron, Jerusalem, Sfat, and Tiberias. But in order to build a functioning sovereign state, Jews have to move. They, They actually have to come to the land of Israel. But that's not the goal. Jews could have always moved to the land of Israel over the centuries. They could pick up and live here under the Ottoman Empire or under previous empires. Uh, so it's not that the return is the goal. The goal is sovereignty. The goal of self-determination. The goal is sovereignty in the land. In order to achieve it, most Jews have to move. But the purpose is not the movement. The purpose is sovereignty. That's what I mean by what's what's secondary and what's the actual goal. Got it. And in terms of the idea of displacement and displacing of peoples who were there, is, is that inherent? That, that is, doesn't have to be inherent, right, to the idea of creating a state. Can you un, uh, dis- explain that a little? Uh, so one of the things, because the conflict has created so many, by now, a massive narratives, is often we have to unpack a lot of things. At the end of the 19th century, at the early 20th century, the land of Israel is a backwater region of the Ottoman Empire. Even Jerusalem is a small city that's like very badly done. I mean, it's not Alexandria, it's not Baghdad, it's not Cairo. These are not like the major centers of the Ottoman Empire. The land is sparsely populated. There's several hundreds of thousands of people at best. Um, that's the situation. So, so from when Herzl and others imagine the establishment as a sovereign state for the Jewish people, they correctly conclude that there's room for everyone and that no one needs to be displaced. There's no vision of displacing people who live in the land in order to establish a sovereign state for the Jewish people. If you read Herzl's writing, if anything, it's exactly the opposite. You can argue that Herzl was naive, but he believed that precisely because Zionism was not about taking, it was actually about coming and investing and creating prosperity. He made the assumption, again, perhaps naive, 
that the Jews would be welcomed because they're actually not coming to take diamonds from the ground or natural resources and send it back, excavate it and send it back to some metropole. They came to live there, they came to develop, and he made the assumption that this will be uh, welcomed. One of my favorite maps, uh, a few weeks ago I posted it, is the map of the United Nations partition proposal from 1947, November 1947, and the map of the incidence of malaria in the land uh, in the early 20th century. And it's almost a one-to-one. Basically, the lands allocated to what to what was to be the Jewish state are almost one-to-one, the lands where you have incidents of malaria in the early 20th century. And in many ways, this was exactly Herzl's vision. Jewish scientists came to live in this land. They helped eradicate malaria. They helped turn land, which was unusable, into fertile land. This is the land that they worked. Uh, the rise in the Arab-speaking population of the land, you begin to see in the 1920s and 30s an extremely sharp rise in the population. Some of it is from immigration, again, because uh, the Zionist movement creates a lot of new industry. There's a lot of immigration. This is still the Ottoman Empire. Uh, later, the mandate period, people can um, travel freely. There's a lot of people com- coming from the surrounding countries, but there's also a sharp rise in the local population because of the eradication of malaria. So there was this naive belief uh, by some Zionists, not all, that they would be welcomed and that this would be uh, a harmonious life of Jews and non-Jews alike uh, because of this vision of a country guided by science and prosperity. Uh, Of course, it doesn't turn out that way, but like you said, the idea that the people who are living in the land would have to be displaced as the price of establishing a state for the Jews was absolutely not necessary. And we know it today. Today, there's about 14 million people living in the land. So Herzl was right. There was room for anyone, everyone, and displacement did not have to happen. Just This is going to be a very ignorant question, but this is in the era of empire, right? So there wasn't a, a state a state established before 1948, right? It's not like there was a country previous. I know this is a terribly ignorant question, but there, it's it's not like this, uh, there was an influx of immigration and all of a sudden a place that had a defined statehood was then up overturned by by a uh, by this new wave of people coming. It's in. actually a very correct? valuable question because a lot of people make uh, that mistake. Uh, in in general, the entire twentieth century could be understood as the global transition from empires to states. So you begin the twentieth century, and if you look at the Earth, it's pretty much almost divided between empires, and then you end the twentieth century. And the earth is divided between states. Now, when those states were lucky, they went through a process of self-determination. So there was a nation that uh, had a common language and a sense of history and maybe a common background, background religion and ethnicity. And they're the nation, they're the people, and they rise as a state like uh, to replace an empire like the Habsburg Empire. Uh, But... When they're unlucky, we see that especially uh, with the British Empire, is like, 
They uh, they just put a few nations and peoples and ethnicities together and they tell them, you're a country now, Iraq. Um, and th the thing is that the reason I'm saying that those are mostly unlucky countries, because they typically, once the empire left, descend into civil war to be followed by a dictator, to fall into civil war. Um, generally, nations that were able to have a more coherent uh, national majority uh, fared better. That's, again, Zionism emerges in this context. So when the Ottoman Empire basically collapses at the end of the First World War, uh, there is an understanding that in place of the Ottoman Empire, there will be states of the local peoples of the empire. Who are they? They are Turks, Armenians, Kurds, Jews, Arabs, uh, I always like to say that if the Jews of the Ottoman Empire received their fair share of the lands of the empire based on their proportion, uh, the Jewish state would have been multiple times, five, six times the size that it is today. So there was an understanding that the Jews are a people and that they have the right to self-determination. The only difference between Europe and the Ottoman Empire is that the British and the French were not uh, so willing to let go of their new, you know, the fact that they were just victorious in World War I and they got all these vast lands of the Ottoman Empire. They want to take those lands as colonial positions. The Americans want to put an end to the European colonial era. So what emerges is a kind of compromise called the mandate system where basically the French and the British will be tutors to the less advanced people of the Ottoman Empire until they are ready to govern themselves. And this is the mandate system, the French- yeah, They're preparing them for self-sovereignty. Precisely. Uh, but again, the idea is that they should be prepared for sovereignty. Like at the end, they should get their state. Uh, and the French are tutors of uh, Lebanon and Syria, and the British do Iraq and Transjordan, and what's called the British Mandate for Palestine. And it should be understood that the British mandate for Palestine is clearly about achieving, uh, helping the Jews achieve self-determination. Today, Palestine is considered an Arab term and referring to Arab people. But at the time, it is universally understood to be a Jewish term. I mean, Palestine was basically a geography. It didn't refer to a people. It was understood as the geography that is the place of the land of Israel. And this is why when you have uh, the Palestine Philharmonic Orchestra, it becomes the Israel Philharmonic Orchestra. It is the orchestra of the Jews who could no longer be in European orchestras. Or sometimes you... My grandfather managed the print at the Palestine Post that became the precisely. Jerusalem Post. Sometimes you see people on... TikTok or uh, Instagram or Twitter say, look, Palestine existed. And, and then they show a picture of like the football, the Palestine football team or a coin. And then you read the names of the football player and there's Moshkovich and Ivanovich. And, and they're like, they're all Jews because that was the football team of the Jewish state in the making. Um, so this is the mandate system. And the mandate, so there's no state to your question. There's no sovereign state yet, but there's an understanding that there will be sovereign states. And indeed, the British and the French fulfill their mandates to the Lebanese and Syrians and Iraqis and Jordanians, but they fail to fulfill their promise to the Jews. And, and that's why the question 
of uh, the mandate goes back to the United Nations because the League of Nations unanimously gave Britain the trusteeship, the mandate to help the Jews achieve self-determination. The British fail. And because they failed, the question is returned to the United Nations. So with the Arab population at the time in Palestine, how, what would be, how would they self-identify? Uh, at this time, uh, if you look, the main identification is Arab. Uh, there is a lot of local identification based on clans, families, towns. So it's very localized. But if you're looking for the largest grouping, it's Arab. So, for example, when uh, the British foreign minister, Ernst Bevan, goes to the British parliament in February 47 to explain why Britain had not fulfilled the mandate and giving it back to the United Nations, he speaks of Jews and Arabs of the land. Uh, so those are understood as the two groups, two peoples at their broadest sense. So then if displacement wasn't the intent how how do we get to uh, displacement essentially what 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 are the the steps that lead to that as the outcome the short answer is war mm-hmm. uh and then the question is why is there war mm-hmm. uh and basically what we have throughout the 1920s and 30s and 1940s is that the arab population of the land and more broadly uh begins to violently oppose any notion of Jewish uh, sovereignty, Jewish immigration. Not enough is appreciated that the reason that Britain did not fulfill the mandate to the Jews, whereas it fulfilled it in Jordan and Iraq, is because of Arab violence, especially in the late 1920s and during the 1930s, Massive Arab violence ultimately leads the British to betray and walk back the terms of the mandate and close the embryonic Jewish state to Jewish immigration. And this is the 1930s. So this, you know, sometimes people think that the state of Israel was established after the Holocaust, so that never again. And I always explain that if you look at Herzl's vision, it was supposed to be established so that never at all. Like he understood never in the, the first of, place. Exactly. Like he understood the sense of urgency early on. And the state of Israel, if you look at all the others, was supposed to rise up in the 1930s. But Arab violence and ultimately British betrayal led to the closing of the doors to Jewish immigration at the most crucial time for the Jewish people. And as a result, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Jews are damned to remain in Europe and to genocide in Europe at the point where they could have still left. So just to uh, that, all- I mean, I mean, the violence, the, there is a lot of violence and riots in, in, in the region. And to be fair, there were also some, some of the, some incidents that were instigated by the Jewish issue, by factions, in the Jewish issue that were more uh, violent towards either the Arab population or the British mandate. We we do have opposition groups in in the early Yeshuv that are that are basically terrorist groups attacking the the Brit, targeting British colonialism at the time. But that's much later. That's that's when it becomes clear that's more into the 40s. Mm, that's mm. when it becomes clear that Britain betray has betrayed the mandate. In the sense of the sense of betrays happens because after the the 
Arab riots on the Jewish issue, there is uh, an attempt to claw away some of the, the Balfour agreements. And also, it's important in the context of the mandate, people talk about the Balfour Agreement as if it's this unique document of British colonialism that was just about placating the Jews, which is partly true. Of course, it was lobbied by, by Jews, but the but it was part of the logic of the mandate system that that existed a, across the region, not uniquely to the Jewish situation in Palestine. Yeah, and the Balfour Declaration is actually less important in that sense. Uh, I gave a talk a few years ago for a centennial for the Balfour Declaration that I called, uh, thank you, Lord Balfour, we'll take it from here. There is a kind of notion that, you know, the British gave the Jews a state. And I always explain that it's pretty much the opposite. Uh, the Jews legitimized the temporary British presence because, as I said, the British were able to kind of get the Americans to allow them to remain as tutors of the local peoples, the Jews, the Arabs, until they achieve sovereignty. But if you read the Balfour Declaration, there's nothing in it. Like we, we view with favor. What really matters is the League of Nations mandate. This is a unanimous vote by the emerging global body that, among other things, is responsible for the carving out of the Ottoman imperial lands. Uh, This is the basis for other people's countries as well. And the League of Nations mandate opens with the phrase that at the time made complete sense, recognizing the historical connection between the Jewish people and Palestine. And because everyone understood Palestine to be the land of Israel, the geography that hosts the land of Israel, that actually was a phrase that made sense. But because of Arab violence and because the Arabs are much more numerous, they're critical to British imperial interests, especially still in India at that point, the Suez Canal. Britain, because of its broader imperial interest, claws back the promises that it was under essentially trusteeship on behalf of the world, on behalf of the League of Nations for the Jewish people. And that's when you see the rise of Jewish groups that fight the British because the British became from trustees that were supposed to kind of help Jews achieve uh, sovereignty to an obstacle to Jewish sovereignty and an obstacle to Jewish sovereignty at the most crucial time in Jewish history. And just to to make sure I understand this, because I'm assuming, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm assuming at this time, the Arab-speaking folks in the region of Palestine are not a particularly powerful group, but because they are Arab-speaking and have some regional connections or cultural connections with other Arabs that are that are more powerful and resourced, that is why Britain would would be walking back in that way. Is that right? Precisely. At the end of the day, and this is up to the present day, uh, if the conflict had ever only been between one, two groups in a small piece of land, it would it would have ended within months. Mm-hmm. Uh, but because it is a conflict that draws on much larger affiliations, certainly for the Arabs of the land with the broader Arab uh, world, uh, with the broader Muslim world, even that's where the power comes from, of course. Okay. And so at the end of the day, how many, I mean, obviously uh, the Arabs are displaced from the land, right? So let's go back to the war. Right. So the violence is building up uh, for years and it increasingly becomes focused 
on a complete and total Arab opposition to Jewish sovereignty in any borders, in any territory. Uh, When Bevan goes to the British Parliament to explain the failure of the British mandate, he basically says the reason we failed is because His Majesty's government has come to the conclusion that the conflict in the land is irreconcilable. And the reason that it's fascinating is that this is February 47. There's no state of Israel yet. There's no displacement at this point. There's no, so there's no refugees. There's no, uh, there's no occupation. That's uh, 20 years later. There's no settlements. So all of the things that we often have come to associate as causes of the conflict, they don't exist. And already it's defined at this early point as irreconcilable. And the reason that he says it's irreconcilable, he says, look, the Jews and the Arabs in the land each have a single goal, the one that they prioritize above all. He says for the Jews, the top priority is to establish a state. So the Jews want a state. And he says for the Arabs of the land, those are the people that will later be called Palestinians. He says for them, the top priority is for the Jews not to have a state in any part of the land. And it's an amazing definition of the conflict that I will argue persists to the present, because he doesn't say Jews want a state, Arabs want a state, and we just want the UN to help us draw an equitable border. He basically says it is a matter of top priority. The Jews want a state and the Arabs want the Jews not to have a state. And so it's not it's not necessarily about the geography then, because it I would have assumed that it was maybe Jews want a state and Arabs don't want Jews to have a state here <laughs> or something about like the specific, like, because we w- we want to have the state in this particular geography or something like that. Oh, th- there's no doubt that I assume they would have uh, less opposition to it if it was in Iceland. Right. Uh, there's no doubt that the opposition is that the, it's the fact in that particular geography, but that also, the opposition to the particular geography is because it carries deep theological meanings for the Arabs who, since the 7th century, I mean, the Arab and Islamic conquests of the Middle East, North Africa, have been hugely successful. And for the Jews to reclaim this land when Jews in Arab lands have only been known as uh, a defunct, dispossessed, low-class people— For them to reclaim this particular geography as the equals of the Arab nations is a theological challenge uh, to an entire worldview. So it's not just a matter of land and geography. It's it's a matter of an entire worldview that in many ways is being challenged uh, by that idea. It's a theological challenge, and it's also uh, dent on Arab honor and the sense of, of unity. It's a blot in the center of what is perceived as the pan-Arabist, basically empire. There was never a consolidation of it as an empire, and people at that period from different regions would compete of who actually represents that nameless, nebulous creation, but it was still seen as a unified identity that is being disrupted by this Jewish settlement in the center. It was not about Palestinian nationality. It was about the, the this little thorn in the center of pure Arab reclamation of of the, the, the region from the, now that the Turkish empire has receded. 
Because remember, the, the Ottoman are, are Turks, they're not Arabs, so they, they were a foreign colonizer for many of these leaders. And for now, to be able to reclaim that Arab Islamic empire and, and, and have that little nagging settlement in the center is seen as an objectionable, dignity-shattering atrocity. Certainly, and this is why the size, I mean, look at the size of the land, it's minuscule, it's not about that. And as I said, most of it was like the malaria uh, lands. So it's not about specific lands or there was no room where it really comes from a much different vision about what is the proper role of Jews, what is the proper relationship. One of my favorite anecdotes is that uh, in the Arab world, there were clear markers uh, that showed that the Jews were of lower class. You know, they could not ride horses. They could only ride donkeys. Horses were a mark of honor. They could not bear arms, of course, because they could only live as the protected people of Muslim leaders, sometimes better, sometimes less so, but they could not defend themselves. So to understand the challenge when suddenly you have the the Zionist Jews, you know, they ride horses. You look at the pictures from the early 20th centuries, they're bearing arms. They insist on defending themselves by themselves. So these are massive challenges to a long-established uh, system, civilization, worldview, theology. And when you have challenges on that magnitude, they don't get resolved easily, and they certainly don't get resolved without violence. And that's why, for example, when the partition proposal goes to a vote in November of 47, uh, the Jewish state, as I said, mostly the malaria lands and the Negev deserts, the Arab state gets the bulk of the valuable land uh, of the area. Uh, and the Jews... Valuable being both strategic and arable. Exactly. And, and the Jews ultimately want partition, even from their perspective, it's a betrayal. They're receiving uh, half of the land that was promised to them by the League of Nations. They're not getting the cradle of Judean civilization. That's in the Arab state. They're not getting Zion. They're not getting Jerusalem. Jerusalem was to, supposed to be a separate uh, territory, a separate kind of internationally managed territory. So they're not getting all that, but because their top priority, as Bevan correctly noted, was to have a state, it fulfills their top priority. They'll get a state. And because the Arab top priority is for the Jews not to have a state in any part of that land, partition fails to fulfill their top priority. And there is a, a great conversation between Jewish leaders and the head of the Arab League um, on the eve of the partition vote. And, the, and you know, the Arabs say we're going to go to war even if this vote passes. And the Jewish leaders, Weizmann and Abba Ibn, say, you know, there's going to be a war, and at the end of it, we're going to be in the same place. So why not just accept partition now? And Azam Pasha, the head of the Arab League, says, we cannot honorably accept this. Uh, it will be against our honor not to fight you. And, and he said, and if we win, you're not going to get your state. And if we don't win, and you do emerge from the war with your own state, he says, maybe, maybe, maybe after centuries, we'll be willing to accept it. So it's all, the, set, the, uh, the stage is already set at this point. So I would argue that objectively speaking, this is a completely unnecessary war. The Jews could have had a state. The Arabs could have had a state. Nobody would have been displaced. They would have been celebrating, both of them, 75 years of coexistence and prosperity and it was objectively entirely unnecessary. 
But because of all of the issues we discussed, honor, shame, theology, historical ideas, this becomes a massive war, initially between the Jews and Arabs of the land, and when the British leave in April 1948, uh, between the Arab countries surrounding the newly declared state of Israel. And it becomes from the Jewish Arab, essentially you could say civil war, to the Arab-Israeli conflict. And any war that lasts a year and a half, and this is a brutal existential war that is fought house to house, town to town. It is existential in the sense that it's understood that it's about the very existence of the state of Israel. It's not a border war about whether Israel will be this size or that size. It's about whether it gets to exist at all. Um, It is a brutal war and brutal wars that last a year and a half always displace people. Uh, We're seeing it now. Everywhere there's war, people get displaced. Some people flee because they just don't want to be next to war. People of better means, we see it. The Arabs who had greater means, who had houses in Cairo and Beirut, they're the ones, the intelligentsia, the leaders, the wealthy class, they're the ones that leave immediately. Uh, I think that's Edward's aid story, if I'm not mistaken. Exactly, exactly. Uh, And... And then people flee the coming uh, war. And then some people are indeed expelled in the process of war. All of these things happen. Jews are expelled. Jews flee from the areas that basically come under Arab control and the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Arabs flee and are expelled. So there's massive displacement. And I will just say none of it was necessary. Just want to lodge one point because of your previous question. I didn't want to interrupt. You know, I've been doing that uh, <laughs> amply. Uh, but you said something about uh, uh, Vanessa. You asked something about the this question of whether displacement was integral to Zionism or, or inevitable mm-hmm. in Zionism. And I, I just wanted to point out that the the implication there could could be. Um, or at least somebody could suggest that the implication of mass immigration of Jews inevitably means displacement. And and of course, there was already a, a local Arab population, as there was already a Jewish population, and, and there were other nationalities that were living in that uh, little strip of land that has experienced many population swaps over the centuries. But it's just worth remembering that Jewish immigration was not the only immigration into that land during those years. There's been a lot of Arab immigration as well, especially under the mandate, because the mandate created uh, work opportunities. So many Egyptians immigrated, many people who would be considered Jordanian immigrated. So it's not just uh, the Jews saw an opportunity and it, it took advantage of it, knowing that it's going to cause displacement. It was a land that offered opportunities for migration and to the extent that the laws allowed it because later in the mandate, the immigration was restricted. But as long as the laws allowed it, Jews saw it as an opportunity to develop their own or to to join existing Jewish settlements, the Yeshuv, and help grow it, as did the Arab population, just with a different vision, not necessarily a nationalistic vision, but just as a opportunity to, to develop, to go either worker opportunities or other kind of um, life choices that communities were making. Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, the only restriction that ever existed was on Jewish immigration. Uh, and that really begins uh, in the late 20s and into the 30s. 
Uh, and yeah, and the opportunities were created because the Jews began to create the foundations for a state and that created a lot of economic opportunities. Uh, and yes, only Jewish immigration. When there was a restriction, it was only on Jewish immigration. Okay, I feel like, thank you very much for spending a lot of time on that. <laughs> and I know for both of you, it's probably very elementary, but I do think it's really helpful for Americans to understand. So I feel like at this point, we should probably pivot Move to the and refugee start, question. start talking I think, about yes. the refugee question. We end up with a number around 600, 700,000 refugees. Yeah, so there's about 150,000 Jewish refugees that are immediately absorbed into the newly established state of Israel. Plus, later we will have a massive of Jewish refugees from Europe who come and Jewish refugees from Arab lands who are essentially being thrown out in revenge. Ethnically cleansed. Yes, exactly. That's uh, the more precise term. And uh, the Arab refugees of the land, like you said, about 700,000. Uh, many of them are in the West Bank and Gaza. The West Bank is annexed to Jordan. The Gaza Strip is under Egyptian uh, military occupation. Uh, others uh, go to Lebanon, to Syria. But the, the vast majority are in Gaza, the West Bank, and Jordan. And again, this is not unique. This era, as we go back to the story of empires being displaced by states, the process of empires being displaced by states is a bloody process. It involves two world wars, numerous regional wars, civil wars, and you have Hindus and Muslims and Germans and Poles and Czechs and Slovaks and Bulgarians and Italians and Turks and Greeks and Jews being displaced in this process. And the general overall message to these tens of millions of refugees across the world during those decades is tough, tragic, move on. Uh, the notion is basically these are new countries, these are new borders. Uh, those countries are now sovereign. They can open their doors to whomever they want. That is in many ways the essence of sovereignty. Uh, and, and that's it. You lost your home. You fled across a newly created border. It's sad, you might have beautiful memories, but basically the message across the world is forward-looking. And this message is coming from from what entity or exactly? So first of all, it's a kind of, uh, I would say, message in the air, but it becomes especially codified in the United Nations. The United Nations, uh, what becomes the refugee agency, the High Commissioner for Refugees, the way that Europe is being managed at the end of the war, what you see in the Indian subcontinent, which is happening at exactly the same time as uh, Israeli independence, that, and, and it's, it's understood and it's true, it's understood that if this would be considered a reversible process, then it would be war forever. And the general desire of the world, especially after World War II, is to try to put war behind and to create a more peaceful world. And the understanding is that peace requires forward-looking rather than trying to undo all these mass movements and displacements. And the only exception here are the Arab refugees from the war. And the reason they receive an exception is as follows. The best way to understand this exception is to look at another 
group of refugees at the same time, the Korean ones. So because the UN Agency for Refugees, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, uh, at this moment is mostly focused on European refugees. This is where the massive refugee crisis of the world in the late 40s, early 50s is. So the focus is mostly on Europe. Because the focus is mostly on Europe, uh, other conflicts get what are called temporary refugee agencies. So the Koreans get a refugee called Ankara, the case for Korea. And Ankara is a temporary agency. Why? Because the assumption is it's going to settle all the refugees and close down. And that's exactly what it does. Within three to four years, it settles 2 million Korean refugees from the war. So that's three times the number of Arab refugees. It does it with uh, a limited budget. Uh, There's no return. Uh, And that's it. Look at South Korea today. The agency closes down and people are forward looking. And that's it. The settlement is over and the war is over. The Arab refugees from the war go through the same process. An, a temporary agency is established for them, UNRWA, uh, the Near East. So it's for the refugees from Palestine. And initially, UNRWA has the same positive vision as Ankara. Let's use the budget to settle refugees in Jordan, in Lebanon, in Syria, in Egypt. Uh, a lot of money, a lot of budget is placed forward to develop the region. And the thinking is within a few short years, they're all settled they're financially and economically independent, and that's it, and we move on. But the Arab refugees themselves uh, and the Arab countries all collectively refuse settlement. And the reason that they refuse it is because they correctly understand that if the Arab refugees from the war are settled, then the war is over. Mm. And they don't want the war to be over. We go back to what Azam Pasha said. If the war is over, it means that the Jewish state stays. And that continues to be an unacceptable outcome. So the war in 1949 doesn't end with peace. The Arab countries surrounding Israel are only willing to sign ceasefire agreements with Israel because they're basically saying, you know, we may have lost the current battle against the Jews having a state, But the war is not over. So we're going to sign ceasefire agreements where all the military stay. But we're going to put a massive question mark on Israel's existence. First of all, by signing only ceasefire agreements rather than peace agreements, which imply recognition. And we're going to refuse to settle the Arab refugees from the war because we want a permanent question mark to be placed on Israel's existence, and we want to send the message that the war is basically not over. And has this maintain, maintained steady like this throughout the decades? Or Because I would imagine each of these country, Arab countries are going through different regime changes, different, you know, situations. Has this been consistent since since this t- time period, 19, late 1940s? So basically what you have for about a decade in the 50s, there's a kind of push and pull. Uh, the, the, the U.S., Britain, uh, the U.N. that are funding UNRWA, uh, they're genuinely trying to end the conflict and to settle the refugees, and they're putting a lot of budgets and excellent uh, workforce to do that. And the Arab refugees themselves and the Arab countries are pushing back against that. For about a decade, you have this kind of back and forth. 
And then basically the, the US, the UK, they want to close down UNRWA. They look at what happened with the Koreans. It's very clear that UNRWA has failed. So already in the 50s, it's clear that UNRWA is a failed agency. It has failed to settle a single Arab refugee. Uh, and they want to close it down. They're like, this is a failed uh, project and, you know, we're out of here. But the Arab countries, and this is already entering the Cold War, their oil is already getting pretty important. They're basically threatening the U.S. and Britain not to close UNRWA. And they're telling them, you know, you kind of made one mistake by supporting partition, by allowing the Jewish state to come into being. Uh, You don't want to repeat that mistake by closing UNRWA. It's understood that UNRWA and keeping UNRWA going and keeping the Arab refugees going is the antidote to the establishment of the state of Israel. Mm-hmm. And just and since they're, if they're not relocating refugees, what are they doing exactly? Okay, so once it becomes clear that UNRWA cannot be closed, but it cannot achieve its purpose of settling refugees, it begins to transform into this organization that essentially supplies educational, healthcare, welfare services. It basically becomes the the social services uh, operation of what are now increasingly called the Palestinian people. And in fact, UNRWA becomes crucial to the emergence of a singular Palestinian people focused on the idea of return, of perpetual refugeehood. And beginning essentially in the 60s, UNRWA gets hijacked by the Arab refugees themselves, by the Palestinians, to become a Palestinian agency that sustains the Palestinians until the moment that they can win the war of 1948, and this time to their vision of no Jewish state. So, okay, so you just said that UNRWA is fundamental to the foundation of a Palestinian identity, which is a pretty big thing. I mean, I would imagine, I would imagine the, the Nakba being one of the form, the forming uh, elements as well. So, so the, the, the Nakba is the the term that's used to describe the, the combination of all displacement of Palestinians after the, the, the war of 48, whether from fleeing from choice or from a dis, uh, active displacement. Yes. But I mean, the fact that a United Nations agency has been instrumental in the creation of identity is actually quite interesting and I would imagine rather unique. I mean, this doesn't seem to be a thing that happens very, very often in the world, I would imagine. Yes, Uh, that was actually one of the biggest moments of almost shock for us, for Adi and myself, as we did the research on the book to really understand how crucial UNRWA was in the formation of not just a separate Palestinian identity, so separate from a Jordanian one or an Egyptian or a Syrian or a Lebanese one, but to have that identity singularly focused on the idea of revenge, of return, of victory in 1948. Even the word that now we've come to use, in real time, uh, the Nakba does not refer to the dispossession the way we think of it now. The Nakba refers, and that more, makes more sense in the context of the time, to the humiliation of having failed to defeat the lowly Jews. 
When you read uh, the essay by Constantine Zurek, who coined the term, uh, and the term really only gets reclaimed in the 1990s, you don't see it appear for decades. But when he writes it in 4849, the Nakba is described as this moment of seven Arab armies tried to defeat the Jews and went home impotent. So the sense of impotence, of failure, of humiliation, that's what the Nakba is in real time. Today, it's been restructured to mean something very different. But what creates a distinct Palestinian identity is, of course, the battle against Zionism and the war. But what allows it to be sustained is... UNRWA. And you're and you're absolutely right. This is unique. This is unparalleled. But it also is something that is deep, and we see it to the present in the things that Hamas said about October 7th. The notion that the United Nations is responsible for everything that befell the Palestinians. So that they, they possess no responsibility, no agency. They're not responsible for the war of 1948. It's not on them. It's all on the United Nations. And we saw recently, for example, when a senior member of Hamas was asked on a television interview, you know, why don't you allow the tunnels to be used by Palestinian civilians in Gaza to be protected? And he said, we're not responsible for the civilians in Gaza. It's on the United Nations. So this notion that the UN is responsible and they bear no agency, no responsibility, that is something that emerges under UNRWA, and it all becomes part of the elements of this Palestinian identity. So I guess I would, so it's almost like the UN is acting as a proxy government in, in a way, and it kind of taking on the responsibilities that a state would have for its people. I mean, does the UN recognize this? Like, what's the UN's line on what it's doing in the region? So first of all, you completely put it the point of like that this is basically the structure of a state. So one of the things that I highlight is if you really want to help Palestinians build a state, and this is something that I very much support and I continue to support the idea that ultimately we are best served by living in two states, then it makes no sense that under the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, or in Gaza, you know, the Palestinian Authority was there for a while, you actually have UNRWA. You actually have refugee neighborhoods. I mean, they're not camps anymore. They're, uh, what, how can you have a person who was born in Ramallah live their, all their lives in Ramallah? They're middle class. They don't live in a refugee compound, but they continue to have that uh, card, that identity of a refugee that is exactly inimical to building a state. Ramallah is a town it, in the West Bank, just to be clear. Yes. So it, it's, it goes against the idea of building a state because you're basically saying we're not looking to build a state because we still view ourselves into the fourth and fifth generation of refugees from another state. And again, that is unparalleled. So uh, you're absolutely right. If you look at the budget of every country, what are the main elements of the budget of every country? Defense, healthcare, education, welfare. That's the bulk of most of the budget. 
So what UNRWA does is essentially be the welfare healthcare education budget and systems of the Palestinians and everything that has to do with war. Well, they they get the money from the Arab world, from the Soviet Union, from Iran, from Qatar. But that's why someone from Hamas can say, you know, we're focused on the fighting. That's why the tunnels are for us. And anything that has to do with the proper role of a government, that's on the U.N., So the U.N. essentially has freed, you could say, the Palestinians to focus on this liberating Palestine from the river to the sea and fighting the Jewish state. What will UNRWA tell you that they're doing? They will tell you that they are engaged in humanitarian work, which for most of the times it wasn't. It's social services, it's education, it's healthcare, it's welfare. And they will tell you that it's not their business to discuss politics. So they're just, you know, they keep registering Palestinians as refugees generation after generation. Uh, They keep alive this idea of return, but they innocently claim that that's not their business. They don't look into politics. This will be negotiated at a future time. And they're just focused on the services at this moment. Yeah, so I, so this was something that in preparation, I was, I was kind of confused by this because Adam mentioned to me that the UN generally doesn't recognize refugees beyond the first generation. Like that's not how they mm-hmm. define or treat them. And so I just, you know, very, very quickly just Googled, <laughs> like I think refugees uh, uh, status or like how, like how long it lasts or something like that. And the UN's page uh, on refugees comes up they actually, they have a very confusing paragraph under under the UNRWA section. I actually wanted to read it to you because I want you and, to And like, note that it's under the UNRWA section, which is... Yeah. Okay. Well and, and just because when I'm reading it, I'm like, what is... Ha- okay. Well, hopefully you'll de- explain. Um, okay. So the header is descendants of refugees retain refugee status. That's the header. And then it says... Under international law and the principle of family unity, the children of refugees and their descendants are also considered refugees until a durable solution is found. Both UNRWA and UNHCR recognize descendants as refugees on this basis, a practice that has been widely accepted by the international community, including both donors and refugee hosting countries. Okay, next paragraph, last one. Palestine refugees are not distinct from other protracted refugee situations, such as those from Afghanistan or Somalia, where there are multiple generations of refugees considered by UNHCR as refugees and supported as such. Protracted refugee situations are the result of the failure to find political solutions to their underlying political crises. Okay, so let's unpack that a bit because uh, they write this paragraph precisely because they yes. know there's a problem. <laughs> right, the, the defensive tone is yes interesting. Mm-hmm. Yes, so I'll explain. Because the problem, uh, are you aware of the Brandolini principle? I came across it on the internet about a year or two ago. Mm-mm. It basically argues that the amount of energy required to refute bullshit is an order of magnitude larger than the energy required <laughs> to produce it. And, uh, you know, sometimes I look at what I don't like it. Okay, so uh, let's unpack it. Let's do the 10x effort to unpack this. Basically, the re- what happened is at the same time that UNRWA was established as a temporary agency, the UN High Commissioner was established as an actual permanent UN organ. Now, what the Arab countries immediately understood 
is that if the Arab refugees would be brought into the UN High Commissioner refugee system, the story is over. Because the UN High Commissioner refugees, based on the refugee conventions, was essentially the idea was to bring an end to the refugee status. Their purpose is to have fewer refugees. They're actually trying to find individual solutions for refugees. So they'll get them settled wherever they fled to or in the third country. And once they achieve that, they're very happy and they erase that person from their roster. Right. And they claim success. And they're like, that person is no longer a refugee. They became a citizen of Germany and we're super happy about it. And they're no longer listed. The Arab countries understood that if the Arab refugees would go under that system, that as its goal, and this goes back to the ideology, as its goal wants to end the refugee situation, they understood that their goal of keeping the refugee situation and the war alive, they wouldn't be able to pursue the goal. So what they were able to force, again, part of the the threats they're making is to create an UNRWA loophole, where basically UNHCR says that it deals with all refugees except the ones that already have an agency. That's how it kind of... uh, And that's how UNRWA created its loophole. As a result, UNRWA is subject to no international standards. It decides who it calls refugees, how it grants refugee status. UNRWA, if you'll notice, does not have conditions that end a refugee status. UNHCR very clearly says... These are the following conditions that mean that someone is no longer a refugee. One of them, for example, is becoming a citizen of a country. Many, many uh, Palestinian refugees are citizens of other countries, most notably Jordan, many people who left Syria and Lebanon. My favorite refugee is the multimillionaire American citizen uh, father of supermodels Gigi and uh, Bella Hadid, he's still registered because they don't care if you get the citizenship of a different country, unlike UNHCR. So UNHCR actually tries to put an end to one's refugee situation. That is what they're focused on. And they don't sit around and say who started it and who's responsible and how to achieve justice. They just try to find individual solutions. Now, it's true that if it takes time, they will look at minor dependents as the part of family unity and give them not the refugee status, but the protection of the agency. But again, if that person gets citizenship, then it's over. UNRWA, first of all, defines refugees in a very different way. People who lived two years prior to 1948, that goes back to the immigration issue. It's a very bizarre way. People who lost home. I mean, it's a very different definition to begin with. Then what it did is it gives automatic uh, membership, automatic registration as refugees generation after generation. The UNHCR doesn't do it automatically. It looks at the specific condition, it looks if the family needs it, and then it grants it. UNRWA just creates it as this ongoing, perpetual, automatic generation after generation. And remember, it does it without, in parallel, trying to settle the refugees. So one of the ways that one needs to understand UNRWA is to understand the package. First, they don't even try to settle the refugees. 
Second, they don't even they don't have even anything that ends the refugee status. There are conditions they, for what constitutes re- removal from a refugee status. Precisely. No one gets removed except from dying, but no one gets removed because they attained citizenship and all that. And then they give this automatic uh, uh, kind of status after generation after generation. And even UNRWA, I mean, the UNHCR calls all of them refugees, but UNRWA uses very careful language, registered refugees, because the Palestinian refugees actually are not part of the General Refugee Convention. They're part of this UNRWA loophole. So when you put all these practices together, I call them the inflationary registration practices, then you have an organization that starts with 700,000 refugees and now has five and a half, 5.7, 5.8 million, because nobody ever gets taken out. Whereas the UNHCR doesn't have refugees from the 1940s. They are all settled and they moved on to new lives. And yes, there are some protracted situations, but it's not automatic. And they try to constantly find solutions individually for all these people. Just to contextualize all of this, I was looking for this quote. All this comes down to the uncomfortable fact that UNRWA is focused with perpetuating the refugee status rather than resolving it. And one of the relevant quotes, this is not about UNRWA specifically, but about the mentality around the the Nakba. And this is from your book, you're quoting Emil Khoury, the Palestinian statesman. And Mm -hmm. he explicitly warned against uh, uh, abandoning the struggle against Israel and seeing the problem through too small a lens, as if it were a purely humanitarian question of people uprooted from their homes. And that's him being quoted, uh, Khoury. They have turned a matter of jihad into a problem of refugees. And looking into the future, Khoury adds, quote, we are concerned to return and turn the question into a question of jihad. We are concerned to harvest hatred of the Jews in the heart of every Arab. And this is another quote, this time by uh, Palestinian historian Rashid Khalidi, saying that the whole question of refugees was clearly premised on liberation of Palestine and the dissolution of Israel. Yes, and that's what we emphasize in the book, because as a humanitarian question, the Palestinian refugee issue is actually a very small issue. Why? Because out of the millions who are registered as refugees by UNRWA today, about 85% live in Gaza, the West Bank, or are citizens of Jordan. So they are actually already in place. They don't need to be resettled. Uh, They are in place They need to achieve statehood, but then again, we're stuck in this loop that uh, they will never agree to a state if their top goal is no Jewish state. But in terms of a refugee settlement situation, there's no question. They're already in place and they've been born there and they haven't been displaced from the places. Then you're left with another 15% who are officially registered in Syria and Lebanon, but we actually know that the vast majority of them have already left. Uh, as a result of various processes, but they live outside of Lebanon and Syria, and many of them have become citizens of third countries. But again, UNRWA will never uh, take them off the registration. Uh, So the amount of people who are genuine refugees 
or stateless, because most of the several hundreds of thousands who still live in Lebanon and Syria, they're actually Arab, Syrian-born, Lebanese-born, but they were just refused uh, the status of citizens in Syria and Lebanon. So they're more, they're better understood as stateless persons rather than refugees. You're talking about the, the original refugees plus their stateless descendants in Syria and Lebanon. That's about 200, 300,000 people. That's about 5% of the total number that are registered. Those are the kind of numbers that the UN High Commissioner for Refugees knows to settle within several short years. So as a real humanitarian problem, it's a small problem. But exactly like the quotes you brought, as a symbolic political problem that keeps alive the goal of the dissolution of the Jewish state, it's, of course, the biggest issue. When when people say, you know, that Palestinians have a right to return, the implicit understanding in that is that they're going to be returning to where Israel is, right? So if you say that, you're essentially saying there must be continuation of war, essentially. That's the— Precisely the only way to achieve that quote-unquote right to return? So two things on that. First of all, there's actually no legal right of the Palestinians to settle inside the sovereign territory of Israel. Uh, They claim they do. They cite various uh, UN uh, Resolution 194. But in the book, we explain, first of all, UN General Assembly resolutions do not write rights, uh, certainly not rights that override sovereignties of nations. Uh, so there's no legal right of return for the Palestinians to settle in Israel. Uh, but they believe that they have the right and they have raised generations over generations over the idea that they uniquely among the world's tens of millions of refugees possess that right that breaches another country's sovereignty. They have created an entire fiction around it that this is not only a legal right, but each Palestinian possesses it in perpetuity over generation, that it is an individual right, and therefore it cannot be negotiated. In the book, we discuss how throughout the years of the 90s and the first decade of the 2000s, when there were negotiations, there was always this notion that neither Arafat nor Abu Mazen, they don't have the right to negotiate it because this is a right and it's individual and it's non-negotiable. So all of these uh, elements have become complete fictions because the idea of a right of return, and that's what we show in the book already in the 50s, was never an innocent idea. It was never about, oh, just people wanting to return to their homes. And we show how when people wanted to return to their homes in the midst of the war, uh, they were actually, the leader said absolutely not, because at the time that was considered a way that would legitimize this the newly established state of Israel. The Arab so the leader idea, said absolutely not. Yes, exactly. The idea of return was always subservient to the question of does it serve to dissolve the Jewish state? That's the only context in which it was ever upheld and which it was ever interesting. Uh, and this is why we also bring examples in the book of why, like, when individual Palestinians could exercise return, be citizens of Israel, that was not interesting because that did not achieve the greater goal of no Jewish state. So, 
that it's always in the service of the greater political goal, but it actually does not exist as a legal right. So sometimes people say, you know, in future negotiations, they will have to give it up. And my answer is there's nothing to give up. They're more than welcome to make that demand, but it's not something that they actually possess and they can give up. I know we were keeping you long, but if you can give us just a quick understanding of how, if at all, UNRWA has changed. We know now that UNRWA is very much involved with Hamas, for instance, harboring hostages in Gaza. So that's actually not new. That That is the permanent feature. It's also what I said, that when we realized the role that UNRWA played in forging a Palestinian identity that was focused on this idea of revenge and return and the dissolution of the Jewish state. So, for example, in the book, we talk about the perpetrators of the massacre of the Israeli athletes in the Munich Olympics and how they were almost all uh, people who emerged from the UNRWA schools, from the UNRWA camps. Now the Hamas leaders, uh, they are from the schools, from uh, the refugee compounds with this refugee identity. So the connection between UNRWA and this identity of perpetual refugeehood and the idea of return and the dissolution of the Jewish state and the liberation of Palestine from the river to the sea was essential to the UNRWA system, which is why there was always an intimate connection between UNRWA and the graduates of UNRWA being members of whatever group is leading the uh, violent battle to liberate Palestine. So Fatah and the PLO and Black September in the 70s and the DFLP and then Hamas and then Jihad. But my argument is that Hamas is merely the most recent in a continued iteration and intimate relationship between UNRWA and the ideology of perpetual refugeehood and being a people in constant limbo looking to dissolve the Jewish state and people who say, okay, and now we're going to take a gun or a bomb uh, in order to achieve that. So when you're saying that UNRWA shaped Palestinian identity, you didn't just mean it as by perpetuating the refugee, their status as refugees, they have cemented an identity that is founded on grievance and uh, call for revenge, but literally that they have inculcated those ideas in their schools as part of their refugee curriculum. Precisely. Wow, that that I didn't actually that that is an important clarification because I did not realize that that's what you were saying, and because I would have assumed it was just it's it must be just correlation. Like you, if they if no one's creating schools and they're creating schools, then okay, and then they hire I assume people who are there who then bring those ideologies. But you're suggesting that it is actually a more direct relationship. Yes, and the teachers themselves are Palestinian registered refugees, so it's a generational teaching. I mean, UNRWA is essentially. A Palestinian organization for Palestinian. It only has a thin facade of several Europeans who are the ones who constantly ask for money because I think the money would not be so forthcoming if people understood that it's essentially a Palestinian organization designed to perpetuate the idea of the war of 1948 as an open case. Uh, so yeah, when I said that, Adi and I were shocked to see the role of UNRWA in the creation of a unique Palestinian identity focused around revenge and return. That's what I meant. And I assume with its own funding stream then, if they because they're separate from the rest of the, I'm assuming it gets its own yes. budget and allocation and, and revenue 
Sorry. No, they, they're actually not a proper UN organ. Uh, they exist separately and they don't have a UN budget, which is why they, because they're still temporary, their mandate gets renewed every two to three years in a general assembly vote. And you have donor countries, mostly from the West, who are funding it to about, by now, about a billion and a half dollars a year. And from the Palestinian perspective, all that money is not humanitarian. Uh, when the United States under President Trump defunded the U.S. part of the UNRWA budget, uh, their response was not, oh, no, how will we fund teacher salaries? Their response was the American president is trying to take away our right of return. So the Palestinians, and I believe correctly, understand the Western funding of UNRWA not as some humanitarian idea, but as a Western and even UN and global legitimacy to their idea that into the fifth generation, they're still refugees, that they have a right of return, and that Israel essentially is a temporary aberration in the region. One last thing before you tell us what you think about the current situation and your gaze for the future, which I'm sure will be as optimistic as what we've been discussing <laughs> just a, it's, it's just as a point of clarification, because I hear a lot of stupid word games online in when people bring the criticism of the right of return, which, by the way, I don't think we've mentioned, is often the one of the key points of struggle in any peace discussion is the expectation that it would include a right of return, which is something that Israel won't agree to. Again, as you pointed out, Vanessa, meaning a return into sovereign Israel, not a return to what would become a Palestinian state. Often that idea of the right of return gets conflated by people who say, well, Israel has a law of return. Why shouldn't the Palestinians? But of course, the law of return in Israel refers exclusively to Jewish immigrants wanting to move into sovereign Israel. It's not a right of return to Ramallah. Or to people who, or families who used to live in Hebron or Gush Katif, it's not that right of return. Precisely. And you're right. A lot of people like to play the word games. Israel has a sovereign immigration law. As I said, the essence of sovereignty of every country is pretty much to determine who enters and who becomes a citizen. Um, Israel has its sovereign immigration law. It calls it the law of return. But again, that's just the English translation. It's different words in Hebrew. Uh, and, but it's an immigration law. It's an immigration law. And like all countries in the world, all countries privilege certain groups in immigration, typically on nationality and language and sometimes ethnicity and sometimes uh, education or whatever. But the Palestinians were offered multiple times, not just to have a Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza, but to actually, once they have the state, to be a sovereign state that enacts an immigration law that privileges uh, people of Palestinian background. Uh, now, again, about 40% of those who claim return already live in the West Bank and Gaza. So they're in Palestine and another 40% are citizens of Jordan. But a state of Palestine could have that kind of law. Absolutely. And it's welcome to call it a law of return as well. But they have rejected that because that's what not what they want. What they want is this notion that they have a right that supersedes Israeli sovereignty because, again, return was never an innocent idea. It was always in the service of the dissolution of the Jewish state. 
So to have the ability of a Palestinian from Lebanon to be a citizen of the state of Palestine to be established in the West Bank and Gaza is absolutely not in service of the dissolution of the Jewish state, which is why they have repeatedly rejected it. So... Return to <laughs> so where do we go? Where do we go? <laughs> so where do we go? Because I, I mean, as as Adam pointed out, like there there is a, in the way that if your interpretation is correct, there is no way forward for peace unless the prerequisite for conversation is: Do you believe that a Jewish state can and should can exist in this space, or should exist, and that you can coexist with it? And if the answer is no, then there's likely no room forward for any discussion of an end of conflict. So does that mean that we're just stuck in perpetual conflict? Like what does the, I mean, you've isolated UNRWA as a major stakeholder or player. Like if if tomorrow the UN or all funding was, you know, went away. I mean, I worry, I don't know what that means from a humanitarian perspective and for the actual people who li- living there. But if it did, do you, what do you think would be the, the fallout. I suppose it's a two-part question because I, I just confirm that you agree that we're in perpetual state of conflict. And part two is if if uh, UNRWA dissolved tomorrow, would, would there for there be a way forward? So here we go back to the fundamental definition of the conflict when we started. The Jews want to state, the Arabs want the Jews not to have a state. Indeed, for the last century, there has never been a moment, even when we negotiated for peace, when there was an Arab-Palestinian vision of peace where a Jewish state exists anywhere between the river to the sea. So when we heard Palestinians in the 90s and the early 2000s say they support two states, we thought that it was understood that one of the states was Jewish. But nobody was listening to them when they continued to insist on this idea of a right of return. So when you're a Palestinian and you say two states plus a right of return, then the only two states you have in mind is a Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza and another Palestinian state to replace Israel. Your vision of peace does not include a Jewish state. So indeed, the conflict ends in one of two ways. Either there's no Jewish state, that's the Palestinian vision, or the Palestinians finally let go of the notion that there cannot be a Jewish state. Except for my personal interest, of course, in that vision, I also think it's a more humane vision. Everyone remains in place. Both peoples get a state and they live side by side. And some land swap Uh, is obviously required. All these are details, dismantling settlements, security arrangements, uh, dividing the land, uh, water, Jerusalem. These are the details that can be negotiated and agreed once the fundamental conflict between, yes, Jewish state, opposition to a Jewish state is resolved. Now, this goes to your second question. How do we get to that point? How do we get to a point where the Palestinians finally forgo a century of opposition to a Jewish state? And one of the ways that we can begin to inch towards that vision is to remove the fuel that has sustained it. So UNRWA is a major source of that fuel. There have been other sources, but UNRWA is a major source. So the reason that I'm talking about, that I'm highlighting UNRWA or dismantling UNRWA, 
is that UNRWA is a form of UN Western and global legitimacy for the idea of Palestinian return has been massively important in perpetuating the conflict. By removing that fuel, it doesn't mean that tomorrow morning the Palestinians wake up and they say, yeah, a century of trying to, of devoting all our resources, all our considerable abilities for the Jews not to have a state have been really destructive all around, and let's have another vision. It's not that they're going to wake up the next morning, but at least you can begin this process. Rather than fueling the exact opposite, let's first remove the fuel from what builds an ever-increasing obstacle to peace, begin to hopefully make that obstacle a little smaller, and then we can push to a different vision. So it's not that it happens the next day, but at least we can finally begin to move in the correct direction. Yeah, and I think you said in your podcast, like, you know, if we tomorrow offered the Palestinians three times the amount that they get from UNRWA, we, you could kind of call call their bluff, right? Because it's not actually about the money and the resources and helping people who need it on the ground. It's about the legitimacy of their of their cause. Precisely. I think that's an important point because, like, you, if if you if I if we assume that all the funding is taken out, it's like wow, what a what a crisis! Like how, like what are we're leaving people in the lurch? But I think your point is not let's not leave them in the lurch. Let's just take away a something that's propping up a, a mission of continual conflict. Absolutely, it's exactly that. So these days, I call myself a long-term peace activist. Mm. I continue to believe that the Jews and Arabs are going nowhere, that we would be best served by governing ourselves, by ourselves. I think the most humane way is really for no one to go anywhere. Uh, But I now understand that it's not about all the things that we have focused on too long, settlement, occupation, all that. All of these things, they can go away. They're not the core issue. So I focus now on let's resolve the core issue Let's get the Palestinians to a point where they have a constructive vision of living next to the Jewish state rather than the destructive vision of living instead of the Jewish state. And that's the path forward sooner or later. But let's at least begin to direct all our efforts in that direction. This is, this is going to be the last question. Um, and we, I really appreciate the, the time you're giving us. I yeah. think this is one of our the best conversations that we had on this topic. The problem of getting... Western countries to call UNRWA's bluff, as as you said, seems to be more challenging now than maybe it was even 30 years ago because of the growing acceptance on the Western left, or at least on some parts of the Western left, of the idea that Israel maybe doesn't have a legitimate right to exist. Maybe Israel being a settler colonial state it should be eradicated and maybe from the river to the sea is the right injunction after all. So bizarrely, I feel more comfortable with that because at least we're talking about the real issues now because that has always been the real issue. Uh, All the words European, white, settler, colonialist, they're just 
recent synonyms for the same old Arab and Palestinian idea that the Jews are foreigners in this land, that they do not have a history, they do not have a connection. I often talk about the alternative Arab vision beginning to emerge from Gulf countries of the Abraham Accords, of Abraham, of recognizing the Jewish people as a people with a history and a culture in the region Zionism being the expression of the Jewish historical connection to the land. It's still the minority vision in the Arab world, but it's an alternative vision and one that brings much hope. Uh, but, but yes, that's all. When people begin to say from the river to the sea and Israel should not exist and anti-Zionism, I have to say, at least then we are talking about what ha- always has been the issue and not, and all the years that we've been pretending that it was about other issues, we just deflected. So at least now we know what it's really about. Lina, thank you so much. Thank you so Absolutely. much. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Uncertain Things. You can follow us on uncertain.substack.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to support us, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. That helps us get around. Share us with your friends and enemies. You can give us some schmickles on the Substack. And until next time, stay sane.